Hello, and welcome to session nine of our Enneagram course. This is on point six on the Enneagram. And um, we want to work with the centers and to use that as a vehicle to deepen our presence so that we can really learn this material together. So uh, let's just take a moment and again, find our breath and really take a moment to stay with our breath. Our ego mind is a lot like a dog <laughs> that we ask it to go fetch something and it fetches it and then it looks at us and goes, okay, and what next, right? So the idea of actually staying with something is not really part of the way our ego consciousness operates, but it is a way our deeper consciousness operates. So what would it mean for me to just stay aware of my breath for a few moments without that what next part of it? And to notice how staying with my breath shifts the quality of my attention. And as we've seen, this awareness of breath tends to open up awareness of sensation. I'll start to notice various sensations throughout my body. And I give that my attention as well as the breath. It's an expansion of the attention to include a little more. So I'm just noticing my breathing and noticing the arising and shifting of the different qualities of sensation. And then to also notice the quality of heart that comes in as I'm doing that. the very minimum, I'm probably less reactive, a little more settled in my emotional field, so to speak. And this tends to bring about more gentleness, more patience, more kindness toward my experience. And we uh, may very well notice this deepening stillness, which is our head center coming online.
as I've already mentioned, when we first encounter that stillness, it can feel daunting to our usual sense of self, a little scary. It feels like the cessation of something or the ending of something, and in a certain way it is, but it's also the beginning of noticing something else, something more fundamental in our experience. And as we stop resisting that stillness, we start to notice that it begins to feel like a ground. It stabilizes us. Um, there's nothing on the other side of it. Sometimes when we first encounter it, we might have a weird sensation of falling, particularly if we're in some kind of practice and we relax and we notice the stillness. We can feel like we're falling, and, and classically we might feel like we're even falling backwards, which is a very strange feeling. But as soon as we get the idea that there's no ground here beyond this ground of spaciousness. There's no rocks we're going to hit, right? We kind of relax and let go into the falling, and it becomes this absolute foundational sense of our consciousness. And once that's there, we feel very much more confident, stabilized, and oriented rightly you could say. We start to feel like we're in right relation with our field of experience. Like the gyroscope is set up right now. This um, ground of consciousness tends to appear as the antidote to fear. And we'll see more about that. At first, we approach this ground and it scares us. Uh, we probably, if I say, you know, silence, stillness, vastness, uh, nothing happening, we're going to associate that with death. And to the part of us that's very identified with all this internal egoic activity, it, it can be experienced as a kind of death, but not a death of the self, a death of the concept of self, which is a very different thing. So there can be fear as we approach this, but as we actually touch into it, it's where we end up when we work through our fear. We come to this grounded, clear, settled place. The other thing about this gifted part of point six is that this ground is not sleepy or dull. It's bright, crisp, and awake. In fact, I would say that one of the core qualities of sixness is this awakeness. It's not only being attentive, it's the capacity to pay attention to anything. Right. Attentiveness itself begins as this field of awakeness that many spiritual teachers refer to, talk about, point to. Again, it, it, this isn't the body or the heart. It's a, something we come to primarily through our 
our awakened head center. But you might say this is the awakeness that we're trying to wake up to. This is the quality that uh, we're looking for. But it's already there. I think even when we're identified with our personality, this awakeness can manifest as the quality of what we're paying attention to. It can be structured and welded into certain patterns, but it's still there in those patterns, in those forms. Here it's liberated. It can be whatever it needs to be. I think sixes, people who have this as their fundamental gift, as their home base, even when they're rather caught up in their personalities, they're paying attention. They're on top of things. They're focused. They're noticing what's going on. They're scanning for what's going on. So that characteristic of paying attention is very fundamental. But we're looking at how the sort of rigid ways that that can become trapped in certain patterns can open through relaxation into this field of wakefulness. As we allow that to... The very surprising thing that happens is rather than this just being a groovy place to hang out, so to speak, we notice that there is knowing in this. Now, we saw a certain category of knowing in point five, and point six is our next door neighbor here. So it's another kind of knowing, but it's knowing what to do, it's knowing how to make decisions which is pretty important for us human beings, right? So we begin to notice that when we're relaxed and grounded and present, it's not exactly like our personality is deciding what to do. It's very clear that that's not the case. And in fact, modern psychology looking at brain studies and brain scans, they've determined that when people think they're making a decision, the decision was already made sometimes seconds earlier. And when what we think is the decision-making process actually happens after the fact, the decision was already made in our nervous system. Here, we might say that this is a little different than the way we might be conditioned to make decisions. If we're conditioned, we're going to tend to make the same kind of decisions because of our conditioning. Our experiences lead us to repeat certain tendencies. However, here, this place from which that knowing comes from, this knowing of which way to go, feels spontaneous. This is like the wellspring from which that understanding comes from. And it's very interesting and mysterious. But when we're doing that, when we're plugged into that quality of intuition and knowing, we feel like it's not our separate understanding, but we're part of a bigger story, a bigger framework. We're plugged into the mainframe, you could say. And then what we're doing is coordinated with a bigger kind of knowing. Sometimes the Tibetans uh, talk about this in terms of big mind. Our individual mind connects with big mind. And when that happens, what we do feels like it's coordinated with a larger orchestration of consciousness. And you could say that the six being here on the primary triangle 
If you look at the Enneagram figure, you'll see again nine at the top and three on the right side and six on the left side make a beautiful equilateral triangle in the middle of the symbol. And they each represent kind of stages or aspects of realization, aspects of enlightenment. And as I was saying in point three, nine is the most basic and fundamental of these, I am that. It's the recognition that you and I are consciousness. That's what's the subject of our experience. In three, we start to realize I am consciousness. Oh, and I'm also consciousness manifesting as this very particular human being with particular talents and capacities and a particular mission, so to speak, a particular journey to fulfill. And that's a, a very important realization too. But here in six, it's more like uh, the realization of we. It's more like realizing that, yes, I am consciousness. And yes, I am this individual expressed self of that consciousness. And I am part of a living fabric, a network, a mandala of consciousness of all the consciousnesses and all the individual expressions, and we start to feel ourselves as part of this bigger dance, this bigger framework. And from here, we get interested in how do our individual efforts contribute to some larger purpose, which becomes a very fundamental question for the six in all of us. This guidance can be about really big things, about life purpose and decisions about our careers and decisions about who we marry and all sorts of things. But it's in little matters too. I think many people initially notice this quality of guidance as intuitions about danger <laughs> or things that look like a bad way to go. And then we just kind of know, you know, that looks like a bad way to go. I'm going to go over here. Or uh, you might get an intuition to not get on a certain flight. Or you get an intuition that you need to hang back a little bit and you can't figure out why. And then a friend that you haven't seen for many years appears and you reconnect. There are these little glimpses we get that we, our cynical mind will put down to coincidence but where we touch the sense that we're part of a bigger framework, a bigger story, a bigger fabric. And we derive a lot of the sense of meaning of our lives. Remember I said how three has to come to six to complete that sense of meaning? Well, we're finding it in how we're participating in this bigger story. And the bigger story can manifest in very humble things, very humble ways. I can think of times where I had strange impulses coming to me that didn't make sense to me, but they prevented me from having a car accident. Um, I mentioned that I was in New York on September 11th. I have some friends who had very interesting stories that because they had little intuitions that morning, they're still alive. They were not there in, in the towers at the crucial moment. I'm sure you know stories like that. I'm sure you've lived stories like that. We start to recognize that we human beings, through our awakeness, through our 
our awareness and through our centers can plug into a category of knowing that guides our actions towards something that is useful, meaningful, and of service. And that is such a fundamental part, I think, of what spirituality is trying to bring us to. It isn't just so that we can be in a good mood. It isn't just so we can be happy. It is for the sake of something. And in the heart of six, we know that. Sometimes, you know, we realize that our lives are more meaningful when we have a devotion to something. Now, that could be as simple as being devoted to our families. We could be devoted to the welfare of our kids. We could be devoted to our life partner. We can be devoted to an idea. But human beings, when they don't have anything they're devoted to, tend to feel adrift. We tend to feel kind of lost, disoriented, right? So what we're talking about here in the six is orientation. When our body and heart are plugged in so that our mind can work correctly, we have an orientation to life. And we experience that in terms of this navigating life, in terms of this guidance about what to do. Should I turn left? Should I turn right? Should I stop? All that coming out of this deeper intelligence, but also in it to notice this quality of our wish to be devoted, our wish to be of service, our wish that our life be part of some bigger journey. My students know that I uh, have been a big fan of the Lord of the Rings story. And the whole story of Lord of the Rings is really about this sixth situation. It's about guidance. It's about no individual is the hero. Everybody kind of has to do his or her part. It's about how we stay true to the degree we have this experience of devotion. And everybody in that story is devoted to something. And I could go into parsing out the individual characters, but I just invite you, if you enjoy those films or books, to go back and consider it from this point of view. I think you'll see a lot of interesting stuff. You'll see the king who doesn't want to be the king. That's a very sick situation. You'll see the, the golem tormented by his inner critic. That's the, the dark and scary part of six. You'll see... Frodo, the hero, who doesn't really want to be a hero, but is asked to do something, and he doesn't understand all the details, but out of this devotion in his heart, he goes on the journey, and he does what he can. Right? All of these are six values. I like to dwell a little bit on what's beautiful and amazing about the six, because I find that people who have six as their dominant pattern... A, are often looking at their sixness in kind of a negative way. <laughs> they, the sixes give the fours a run for their money in having low self-esteem or um, not really liking who they are and so forth. And so I like to take time to sort of highlight how crucial this quality of consciousness is and how much the world needs it. You know, this is very important part of the circle. Uh, also, I think sixes are a type that often has difficulty 
finding their type. And there are reasons for that that I'll explain shortly when we go into the passion and the fixation. But just to hold the idea that sixes sometimes don't recognize that they are sixes. So this quality of essence of six, I hope you're getting a feeling about it, manifests through the three centers. So when, again, I'm, I'm really wanting you to get that a type is not a center, that the type energy is in all three centers for all nine types. So here in the, the six, when that six energy is flowing through the body, it brings the qualities that come from the body of willpower and persistence, not giving up, going through whatever hardships or challenges are necessary, but I keep going at whatever pace I can. That quality of will and persistence comes from the body. It's an instinctual thing and um, very important quality to have, I might add. And it is certainly what kept Frodo going in Lord of the Rings, for example, uh, this perseverance. The other thing that we experience here through body in the uh, six framework is we start to experience body as a vehicle. All of us might realize that from time to time, but I'm going to put this perception in with the, the six framework, the six view of things. Our body can be an amazing source of life. It can be a source of energy. It can be how we're able to do things. But here we experience it as a vehicle for awareness, a vehicle for consciousness, that my human life is here to be a vehicle for something. Now, even on the most secular view of it, we're a vehicle for nature. We're a vehicle for the purposes of nature. If you want to go beyond that, I'm suggesting that on the philosophical and spiritual level, our life is for something. And we find that through the body. And of course, once you realize that, you also want to take good care of your vehicle. And it's interesting for all of the challenges that sixes face, they tend to be a type that takes better care of themselves than some do. So that idea of persistence, willpower, that energy to keep going, to take those last few reps in your workout, right? Beyond your comfort zone, I'm going to keep going. Okay, that's enough there. Uh, but also this sense of body as vehicle. The six energy in the heart manifests as this quality of devotion I was talking about. Dedication and devotion. Sixes are not generally gooey. <laughs> They're not uh, sentimental particularly, um, but they are devoted. And I don't want to get glommy with somebody, but if I love someone, I'm very devoted to them. I'm devoted to our relationship. I might be devoted to the success of the company I work for. I might be devoted to the country that I live in. Uh, there are many levels and forms of devotion, but if I'm an Enneagram 6, I'm always looking for a place to put that devotion. Um, if I don't have anything to be devoted to, I feel very out of sorts. So um, this devotion and dedication is a 
key element of, of six and, and I think very essential. That isn't a personality thing. And then the mind, the six energy in the mind, the six essence in the mind is this quiet mind and this operational guidance I talked about. Uh, you see, the five is that guidance about what's real and what isn't, what's true, what's the deeper truth. And here in the six, the guidance is about what to do, is how to make decisions, as I've explained. So all of that is pretty amazing. And when that's operating and you feel that ground of consciousness, you feel the awakeness, you feel the ongoing spontaneous understanding of how to participate and move forward in life from this moment into the next, and you feel like reality has your back in some way, and there is this heart of devotion, you're not living your life timidly. You're living life full on. You're going where life calls you. If they ask you to take the ring to Mordor, you'll go right? You, you're ready for whatever may come. And there is, I, I just say that too, this all manifests as a kind of readiness to live, both for the fun and the joy of it, but also for the purpose and the, the parts that ask us to be responsible for something. I think this responsibility is not often talked enough about in spiritual circles, that it's a big part of being an awake human being. So um, all of this is quite lovely, and we would want to live our lives this way. But of course, in the process of our developing egos and going through the trials and tribulations of our early development and childhood, we lose the direct sense of presence. And here it's to lose all of this, to lose the awakeness, the ground that steadies us, uh, we lose this sense of devotion, or we certainly lose the sense of what we're devoted to. We lose the sense of being part of a larger fabric, a larger cosmos. And now we feel lost, disoriented, terrified. We feel like a child that's lost in the woods, or perhaps lost in a strange city where we don't know anyone or anything, like a, a terrified child who's become disconnected from his or her family. And um, that lost feeling is not so far under the surface. Uh, so many people feel that way. We do so many things to numb that fear, ignore it, pretend like it's not there. Some of us do that through substance abuse. Some of us do that through being smarty pants and thinking that we've got all the answers. But all of it is a reaction to this deep existential sense of lostness. A lot of the philosophers of uh, in Europe and America around the turn of the last century, late 1800s and early 1900s, talked about this in terms of the loss of God. And what they were really talking about, if you read those books, is this loss of orientation. How do we live if we don't know how to orient ourselves? If we've lost the sort of moral compass that our religious sensibilities gave us? So that's really six world. Uh, and I'm not saying, and I don't want to suggest at all, that sixes have a particular religious orientation. 
I think if you had a, a hundred sixes, you'd have a hundred different belief systems. People are very individual about that. But this search for something that orients me is activated because I feel that natural inborn guidance system is somehow missing. Like somebody gave me this amazing brain, but they didn't give me the owner's manual. So what do I, what am I supposed to do now? It's like, okay, you're an adult now, go ahead. And what, what, how do you do this? What, what am I supposed to do? How do I become the things I need to be? And that kind of quiet fear we all have, that sense of not being ready, but we'll do our best is what we're talking about here. So this loss produces, well, fear. Without that guidance, we feel like we're hurling down the highway with our foot on the accelerator and a blindfold on. So we're just waiting to hit something. We're waiting for that collision. We're certain something's going to happen because we can't see or tell where we're going. And if you look at the frantic ego activity of people, if you look at our massive rampant consumerism, scratch the surface of it and you will find this existential terror. That's what runs our world. That's what runs the ego. When the uh, Course in Miracles talks about things being love or fear, this is the fear that book is talking about. As a passion, what do we call that? I don't prefer the word fear because fear can be a lot of different things. It covers a lot of ground. Fear can sometimes be useful in its activating capacities. But the word I found that I like better for the passion, the suffering of the six, is drawn from the German language. And in a sense, it is the German word for fear. It's angst. A-N-G-S-T. Angst. Angst has the qualities that we associate with fear, but in the context of the German languages, it also implies a, a kind of anguish, a spiritual anguish, a kind of despair, a kind of twisting feeling. Um, it's very painful and it's ongoing. And the sense of angst also is this underlying existential dread that's always there in the background. And that's much closer to what we're talking about. Uh, some of the German existential philosophers described angst as knowing that we don't know how to make decisions, but having to make decisions anyway as the basis of it. And that is very much the sixth conundrum. So this angst is, uh, again, this anxiety that is running in the back of our mind that makes our thoughts go, 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 and turn, turn, turn. You know, when you, you have this fear or anxiety going, it's very hard to quiet down your mind. You ever notice that? It, it just gets much harder to get still. We get carried away by our anxious thoughts. What is really interesting about fear or this quality of angst is like the shame or the sadness that we saw in the heart center or the anger that we saw in the instinctive center, this emotional energy can be worked with, can be transmuted. 
when we're present with anxiety and we're not making up a story about what it means, we're just with the direct felt sense of it, it becomes an energy. And this energy carries us right back to the awakeness, which is the ground of the six. And suddenly it's easy to pay attention. You ever notice that when you're scared, you're not sleepy? If you hear a bump in the night, suddenly you, you don't, you're not ready to turn over and go right back to sleep. You know, you're activated. Fear has the possibility, if we're present with it, of activating and awakening our organism, um, illuminating our nervous system and bringing this sense of readiness. It can be an awakeness with a little more fear. It's a kind of vigilance with a lot of fear. It's hypervigilance, but in all cases, if you breathe and relax with it, it's part of what gets us ready for moving into whatever life is bringing next. And it shifts it around so that instead of feeling like life is something that's happening to me, which is how it is when we're experiencing it on that ego level where we're just this little particle and life is happening and things are being destroyed and oh my God, look at that over there and look at that wreck and oh, when's going to be my turn, right? Living like that, when you work through that fear, breathe with it and let it become this activating energy, we become more like a martial artist in a dance with reality. And whatever is coming with us, we're dancing with it. We know what to do. We know how to navigate. And we're back in this connection with this deeper mind. Now, needless to say, it takes a little practice to have that available on a regular basis. But I would also suggest, and I invite you to look at your own life, to see that many times when the proverbial caca has hit the fan, right? When you are dealing with a real problem, sometimes this other aspect of you rises up and deals with it much better than you would have ever imagined. And then after the trouble's over, you look back and go, how the heck did I do that? Where did that wisdom come from that carried me through that difficulty? And yet something in me knew what to do. That's amazing. Right? But it really gives you the sense of how this consciousness is beyond our usual sense of ourself. That's why we call it essence. That's why we talk about it in various spiritual terms. The experience of it is this isn't just little old me figuring something out. This is me yielding to a deeper intelligence that feels connected with a bigger part of life. And we all have had moments of that. I just wanted to say that because fear is such a big topic when we're looking at these kind of things. And Don Riso really felt it was the driver of all the personality types in one way or another. He endeavored to show the basic fear of each of the nine types. And we reference those in the books that uh, he and I wrote together. If you're interested to go learn about that. This angst has at its core just this absolute existential terror. And I call it the terror seized heart. It feels like, it may feel like a weight on my chest. 
it feels like a paralysis in my chest, like I can't breathe, like I can't move, like everything is frozen up inside. And I just feel like I could die right now. And that's at the core of all this. This terror is something that I suspect we experienced in the process of losing our connection with this ground, which had to happen in our development as human beings. That this terror was part of the sense of losing our sense of being part of the fabric of reality. So as we start to return to our ground, we're going to probably experience this fear again. Now, one of the things that always used to irk me a bit was how often spiritual teachers didn't let students know that there are some bumps in the road on the way to the place of freedom and joy and all the good stuff, right? And one of the things that, that I could help you understand here, I hope, is that every time you move beyond your familiar ego structures, no matter how painful those structures are, no matter how much chaos they've created in your life, no matter how miserable they've made you, any time you try to get out of that box, one of the first things you're going to feel is scared. It's just how it is. So if we think that being scared means something terrible is happening, we'll never get out of the box. We have to learn to flow with our fear. We have to learn inner disciplines, a kind of inner warriorship, which is very much part of the sixth sensibility, where we know how to work with our fear. We know what to do when it comes up, and we can discriminate when it means there's danger and when it means I'm going into the unknown. Right? Any movement into the real awakeness that I'm talking about or that you've read about in various spiritual books is a move into the unknown. It's not going to be the way I already understand it. So we really want to be awake to and ready for and compassionate about the way this fear is going to come up on the journey home. So you had the fear coming into the box. You're going to have the fear stepping out of the box. Right? Many of you have heard from me or from people who have paraphrased me over the years saying, the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box. It shows you the box you unwittingly got stuck in and the way out of it. This is what I'm forever trying to help us remember. We don't learn about this stuff just to paint a happy face on our box. It's to see how we can find all the consciousness and love that's in us in certain patterns and that this happened without decisions exactly. But then when we become awake to it and when we bring heart to it, there is a way we can get out of that box and grow into a much fuller living presence in this world. That's why I do this work, and that's what I'm hoping you're receiving in the way we're talking about things in this course. So a little uh, pause there in the midst of our discussion, but it seems quite relevant to the themes that we're working with here in Six. And if it's not obvious, I want to explicitly say that what I'm speaking about isn't only for Type Six people. 
it's for all of us. Everything I'm talking about here in terms of working with fear, I'm speaking about a universal principle for the spiritual journey for everyone. As I've said at the beginning and that hopefully I'm reiterating throughout this whole teaching, every one of these points is relevant for a total human journey. So here, yes, if you're an Enneagram 6, this is going to be front and center. But even if you're not, my goodness, we all struggle with fear. We're all looking for how to orient toward our lives. We're all trying to find that sense of participation in a bigger story. So I'm, again, looking at this as a meta perspective of the human journey for everybody. So we can all take this in. So I suspect we all can feel that sense of roiling dread that lies at the heart of the personality, this angst, um, this deep unease that we all feel as the passion. So what is the fixation? Oscar Chazo called the fixation cowardice. Now, if I think about his choice of words, as with some of his other terms, I think it points to something very important. I would choose a different word for the actual mental activity. But what I think Oscar's getting at here is that this cowardice is based in the word I'm going to use, which is doubt. Uh, one of my mentors, a woman named Alia Johnson, used to say, when the gates of heaven open and invite you in, it is very important not to blink. And what she meant is, we have these knowings, we have these senses of a bigger purpose in life, and then our cynical mind jumps in and goes, yeah, but that can't be real. Oh, but I'm just a regular guy. Oh, well, this, that won't work in the real world. And we just obliterate the opening we just had. And what we're doing then is we're jumping back in the box. Skepticism has its place. And sixes are the natural skeptics of the Enneagram. There's a, a necessary function of skepticism, but when it becomes a blanket way of being, it is precisely a way of keeping ourselves in the box. Cynicism is the mind trying to protect the heart from further disappointment or hurt. And so to the degree we've been disappointed, to the degree our idealism has been wounded, we will be cynical. And we don't need to be rough with ourselves about that. We also don't want to completely buy into our cynicism. So there's a middle road here where we can respect our skepticism and understand that people do tell us all sorts of nonsense on a fairly daily basis. But there's another way we don't want to be cynical with our own realizations, with these moments of illumination and truth that hit us and change the whole landscape. And then we obliterate that realization to keep the crappy old landscape going because it's all I know and it feels safe to me and I don't want to get hurt again. You can tell the difference. And of course, you know, sometimes we're going to do that 
and we need to be kind to ourselves when we do it. But we hopefully get up again and we wait for the next opportunity or we move toward the implications of what we saw. So this cynicism and doubt are the way I experience it, which can also manifest as overthinking things. I think the sixth tendency is to overanalyze, overthink. It's a deep desire to not mess up, to not make a mistake. So we're thinking, yeah, I kind of feel it's that. <gasps> but what if it's like that? What about that one time it was this? And it's like a Greek chorus comes up in your mind and keeps presenting contradictory evidence. And what you end up with is analysis paralysis. So this can drive sixes crazy. They are generally aware that they're doing this. And again, you don't have to be a six for this to be going on sometimes. I experienced it. I'm not a six, but I was looking to get a hotel in a city in another country. And I wanted to find a good place to stay from a lot of perspectives. But I saw that some of the areas of the city had a lot of dangerous crime. And so, well, maybe I better not stay there, even though the prices are better. And over here, oh, that's a good area. Oh, boy, that's really too expensive for a hotel room. And I just went round and round and round, just driving myself nuts, trying to figure out where should I stay that will be economically viable and safe and be a good place to be. And finally, you know, you just get exhausted and you just pick something. So six in six, we also talk about something called counterphobia. Counterphobia is something you can only have if you have a phobia. So there's no such thing as a person who's only counterphobic. Counterphobia is moving against the fear you have, taking some impulsive action to just make this this mental nonsense stop. So sometimes sixes will, just on the personality level, will tend to go one of two ways with things that make them anxious. One is to become cautious, careful, considered, measured, taking the safer road, having some backup plans, insurance policies, etc. That's the more phobic. That's a that's being careful, not necessarily overtly timid, but I'm not taking chances here. I want to make sure I've got the best possible way to go. Counterphobia is where we just want to ride motorcycles, go bungee jumping, play loud music, um, you know, tell the boss off, get into a fight with our spouse, etc. We're just venting our anxiety and going against the fear in some sort of way of action that's meant to silence all this inner chatter in our head. So on a personality level, you might see either of those, both of those. Some sixes will lean a bit to one side or the other, but I've never met a six that was all one or the other. Just in some areas of life, I might be phobic, some more counterphobic. All of this is just a, a question of how deeply I'm taken by the passion of angst and the fixation of this overthinking could be a little bit or a lot. That's the, each of the types has this vertical dimension of how deeply am I embedded in this stuff or how free am I from it? And that again is a function of my degree of presence. Um, so, you know, when we're a healthier six, 
we'll still have some of these tendencies, but we're to some degree in contact with that guidance. We have some sense of that ground, which just manifests as a easeful confidence in ourselves and in our capacities. When we're more caught up in the inner storms of six, it's hard to remember that we're actually competent, capable people. We tend to have what Don Riso and I used to call an amnesia of success. Everybody else is amazed because they know we're awesome, but we don't feel it. We feel like this time I'm going to screw it up. I've done this a million times, but this is going to be the day I blow it. And so there's this anxiety we go into, even things that we know quite well how to do. I think it helps to have some compassion for this. Without the guidance, part of this overthinking is trying to be ready for problems. Sixes love to be problem solvers. But the, the issue here is, in my mind, I'm trying to anticipate things that could go wrong. What might go wrong with my marriage? What will happen with my job? If the economy tanks again, what is going to happen? Will we get laid off? Is the company going to survive? There was a divorce. Will my kids take my side or my partner's side? You're thinking about those kind of things so that when and if they occur, you're ready. But when we do that, our nervous system doesn't know that these things aren't happening. Our glandular system doesn't know that these things aren't happening. So as I'm thinking about these things, I'm pouring adrenaline into my system. I'm stressing myself out. And my poor body and my emotions are experiencing this as if this was really happening. So even though my life might externally be fine, great even, I have a good marriage, I have a solid partnership, my work life is going well, good kids, whatever it is. My life is actually pretty darn good. But in my mind, I'm thinking about this stuff, so it's as if my life is falling apart. And it feels that way. So I, I seem really jumpy and stressed out to other people, and they don't know why, because to their eyes, I'm doing well. But internally... In the interest of being prepared for these problems, I'm scaring myself. I'm living as if everything could fall apart at any moment. Now, some sixes might say, yes, but that could happen. True enough. But I'm also robbing myself of the riches and rewards and uh, enjoyment of all that's good in my life when I'm unconsciously doing this pattern and that layer of angst and overthinking is what blocks out the very guidance that would help me navigate any real problems should they occur. So it, it's like all the other types is kind of self-defeating. When we start to bring presence to this overthinking, overanalysis, doubting, cynical mind, when we breathe into that, when we breathe into that fear, when we start to work with that fear, is transmuted into the virtue of courage. Now, I think people in general like the idea of courage, but we have to maybe get a little more specific about what we mean here. Courage here for me is not counterphobia. 
It's not me doing something impulsive and a little bit dangerous to kind of get out of my fear, nor is it necessarily self-sacrifice. Some people say, for example, a soldier who sees a grenade and jumps on it to save his friends, that's an act of courage. And I would say, no, I don't think it is at all. It's a, that's an act of love. That's an act of love and self-sacrifice, which is also amazing, but it's not the same thing. Courage that I'm talking about is the courage to show up, the courage to emerge from the fear-based collusion that we all live in and to follow the guidance that is coming to me, where it leads me. Courage is the courage to risk losing the support of others when we speak and live our truth. Generally speaking, when we get more present, people don't react to us with fear and loathing. They go, wow, she's really on the ball today. Wow, she's so kind. That was so great. Wow, that was very thoughtful. Wow, I felt really safe in her presence. When we were little kids, we had to fuse with the craziness around us. We had to merge with the level of sleep and disassociation from the truth of our human lives in order to join with our families, with our communities. What choice did we have? So when we start to come back to ourselves, there's a part of it that feels like striking out on our own. Like we're leaving the crazy, confusing, known world, and as much as we detest it, we're afraid to leave it. But there's something in the spiritual journey that's like a completion of our individuation process that was started in our childhood. It's the process of of us becoming truly and completely who we are so that we are free as a vehicle to do what we're here on this earth to do and be. And to the degree we're afraid to step into that because someone might be disappointed or upset with us, well, that's going to take courage. The courage to be who we are is a big thing. It's funny to me how many uh, beloved songs are about people finding this courage, the courage to be themselves, to follow their true path, to step out and just face the possibility of approbation, disapproval. But you can't really find too many people throughout history who stepped up to the plate, who didn't run into some kind of resistance, who didn't run into some kind of opposition. But if we're going to let that decide things, we will never embrace our true purpose here in the world. We'll stay safe, but in the sidelines. And we have to decide in some sense, and talking about decisions again, whether we really want to follow our heart's journey. But to follow our heart's journey requires this courage. Now, courage is not something that we crank up exactly. It isn't uh, something we create. But as we land in our presence 
and we see the situation as it really is, for me, courage is this experience that I feel in my heart that reality has my back, that some greater intelligence is holding me through an experience. And it's a kind of fundamental okayness that even if this ends in my end, I'm still going to be okay. Right? It's recognizing that ground I talked about and that this ground of what I am cannot be destroyed, cannot be harmed. What I am at root is part of the whole cosmos. And whether you think about that in terms of spirituality or religion, or whether you just look at it in terms of the fact that we human beings are made of the stuff of the cosmos. And that's not just poetry, it's literally true. We get a different sense of what it is to be a human being, to be a consciousness, to be in this world, and what our life might actually be for. So I find that very moving, and I hope you do too. And I can't say too many times, this is for all of us, not just Enneagram Sixes. Although if you are a Six, I'm hoping this is resonating for you. When we're caught in the fixation and the passion, we lock in the centers in a certain way. So the egoic version of the centers, the personality-based version, is first an identification with the head center. But now it's the head center used to, for me to figure out what to do. And that's, while that's part of its function, it really diminishes the total power of what the head center can do. Once that occurs, like the nine and like the three, I develop an inner split. So, for example, if you remember the three, the split was between the heart on one side and the mind and body working together on the other, the thinking and doing circuit separated out from the feeling in the heart. And that's how I lost the sense of meaning and purpose and value because it's split off from all this stuff I'm doing. So we want to put them back together again. With the six, the head gets split off from the feeling in the doing, from the heart and the body. And so... When I'm doing stuff, when I'm with the heart and the body, I still have the devotion, but I don't know what I'm devoted to. The receptive quality, where that guidance comes from, feels cut off. So I'm looking externally for things to give me a sense of what to do. I'm looking to friends. I'm looking to authorities that are either people I know that I trust or things I've read in a book. I'm looking for externals that seem trustworthy to me to replace this loss of a capacity to see what I need to do. And I'm hoping if I get enough of that right, that it will compensate for me not knowing that. In some cases, I'm using those external things to to bounce off of, to see, or to sort of guess what I might really know. Because sometimes I find out by what I disagree with. If I hear an argument and I really disagree with that, it lets me know that my own guidance is telling me something different. And so I try to find out by process of elimination. Really what we want to do is get that dutiful 
functional, responsible self connected with the part of me that knows. When the mind on the other side is disconnected from the heart and body, it doesn't have the connection with the knowing place. So experience it as going round and round and round in circles, thinking, 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 thinking. Because without that grounding, the mind can't stabilize, can't open to its deeper nature. So we're either in thinking and analysis mode or we're in dutiful, devoted doing mode. But we need to put the two together. And that's, again a kind of a two-step process. It's a process of, um, yes, getting grounded and present in my body and heart and then noticing the activation of my mind, paying attention to my thoughts. There's a style of meditation uh, called Vipassana, which comes from Buddhist tradition. Some of you may be familiar with it, where you're just noticing what your attention is going to. In this case, you'd be noticing the sort of flow and movement of your thoughts and the inner conversations and images you're having. But what you need to do here in six is go a step further and notice the inner silence. Notice what's behind your thoughts. Notice the movie theater in which the movie is being projected. And then as you start to notice that quiet stillness while all this activity is also occurring, that's the beginning of the re-threading or the reconnection of these different centers. So that is really telling you about the imbalance of the centers that occurs on the personality level, but it's also a kind of basis for some practices you might do as well. The inner lines or arrows for six go to point nine and point three. If you look at the diagram, it's pretty plain to see. And once again, we're looking at that equilateral triangle that's more or less in the middle of the figure. So what does it mean here? Six goes to three in stress. And very simply put, when my anxiety is reaching a certain crescendo, when I just can't overthink things anymore and I'm kind of driving myself crazy and I'm at a peak of anxiety and spread pretty thin and pretty agitated, I tend to believe that if I just shut up and focus and get some stuff done, I'll feel better. So like a three, I pull out my checklist. I've got some tasks to finish. I'm going to get that off my desk. I'm going to get that off my desk. I'm going to go clean out my garage. I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get that done. And like a three, I'm just going to move through tasks and I'm going to pretend like everything's cool. And I'll, yes, everything's good. Got it handled. And I'm going to be like a three just to sort of focus on behavior. And I think if I remove some of these things that I have to do, it's going to make me feel less anxious. And it might temporarily, but since I haven't got to the, the core of my problem, the anxiety is going to come back. Uh, but it's a way of letting off steam, as all of these stress points are. And it's a necessary compensation. When I'm in the six and I'm kind of driving myself crazy with all the thoughts about the things I need to do, of course, it makes sense to just drop down into my behavioral part and get some things done 
it makes sense. But what I'm actually needing there is a little different, as we'll see later on. What the three represents as a liberation for me is something different. Um, the other thing that happens with six at three is six like nine uh, signed an anti-narcissism contract. So <laughs> six really doesn't like a show off. Six really doesn't like anybody kind of drawing attention to themselves. Uh, sixes think it's way more sacred and holy to be humble and on the sidelines or what have you. However, with certain people, I, I sure want them to notice me. And there is, when I'm more stressed out, I tend to be more attention-seeking, assuming what I'm doing is the best. <laughs> that it's superior to others. I've got it. I've got it going on, and you guys should notice that I got it going on. But that's usually a symbol that I'm stressing out as a six, and there is something there that I really need. There's an ingredient, but it, it's coming out in this acted out fashion. If we go the other way to nine, this is the integration point, but it's also got that security point shadow. So I'm hyper, hyper responsible as a six. I give the ones a run for their money. I am always trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to make sure things get handled. I don't need the glory, but I want this company to stay in business. You know, I do what it takes to keep things running. And I get myself stressed out partially by trying to cover a lot of bases. And my life becomes not about living, but about handling things. And so it's when I have people around me that I trust and I think I can get away with it, I'm done. I've, I've given enough. I've sacrificed enough. I have stressed myself out enough. Now I want a beer. I want the TV. I want to chill out. I want to talk about nonsense. Uh, I don't want to have to respond to your needs anymore, honey, and you may massage my feet. And it's just, that's it. And so other people, and we tend to do these security point things with the people we're closest to that we most trust. So everybody else gets all my responsibility. Then I come home and I don't want to be responsible. So I give that kind of uh, nine-ish disengagement to some of the people that I care about most. Now, if I look at that and the problems that that's apt to create but see into it or see past the behavior into the need there. I will recognize that I need this grounding. I need this slower breath. I need this level of being that the nine has. And as I really take responsibility for this part of me that feels too stressed, too stretched, too overworked, right? I start to find more sane and balanced ways of landing in myself, being grounded, having that peaceful, connected quality of the nine, even as I'm doing the stuff I got to do in life. And now you see there's some echo of the three there too in that equilateral triangle of the, the three, the six, and the nine kind of all plugs in together. You don't find a healthy six that has not integrated healthy nine. And you integrate healthy nine by recognizing the shadow first. 
that part of you that just doesn't want to deal with people or anything really much. I, I just want to be left alone. That part of me that wants to be left alone is, is a clue about finding this grounded being. And now it's time for the wake-up call for point six. You may not have recognized uh, these teachings as practices, um, but they were embedded in the teaching in various ways. But I invite you now to consider that these were things you could do, things you could take on in your life as a way to explore this six energy as it plays out in your life. And I've already given you a couple of practices uh, here in the six. One of them was to work with fear and breathing with fear. Like if I notice fear, I breathe with it. You ever get a leg cramp while you're sleeping? Oh, they're the worst. Where you're you're sleeping and suddenly a, a muscle in your leg goes into spasm. You know that when you get a cramp like that, if you react to it, if you tense against it, it gets worse. What do you do when you get a cramp like that? You breathe as deeply as you can. You breathe right into that tension. You breathe right into that pain. And you keep doing it. And you move the energy through. And then, you know, you'll still have some soreness. But the, the raw hurt of that contraction relaxes. Fear is rather like that. Fear, when it activates us, it creates these kind of contractions in our soul, in our field of consciousness, and literally, of course, in our physicality too. So when we encounter it, we breathe into it. We work with it. We let it move through whatever it needs to move through. The other practice I want to suggest is related to what I was saying about reuniting the centers, that I need to see how I get lost in my overthinking, in my doubting mind, and how when that is activated, I'm not connected with the parts of me that give confidence and that connect me with that inner guidance, which is what I'm desperately looking for. So again, to reiterate, it's a two-parter. I need to first get grounded in my body and heart, but then to seek out that inner quiet, to find the space between the words and images in my mind. What is the framing of those words and images? To feel the spaciousness and quiet of my mind and to listen into that quiet. We are deeply, deeply conditioned to listen to our, our fearful thoughts. We're deeply conditioned to believe the stuff we tell ourselves, no matter how awful it is, right? We're not conditioned to listen to the quiet place in us and to trust that what we need to know will emerge out of that quiet. But I invite you to notice that every time you have a great idea, a great breakthrough, a great creative moment, it tends to come out of nowhere. Learn those skills to learn to listen to the place where this creativity, wisdom, insight, guidance comes from. And again, I hope it's obvious that this is helpful for every human being. 
If you're six, this is a magic key, but I don't know anyone who would not benefit from working with these practices and this perspective. So now we're going to explore the essence of six through practice. So let's take those deep breaths. Really give yourself permission. This isn't just going through the motions. Every step of the process is important. As the heart comes in and there's more kindness and these finer, subtler flavors of the heart begin to emerge, the mind begins to quiet down. And here in point six, we want to really be aware of the relationship between that quietness in the depth and the ideas and thoughts that come and go. The presence of those thoughts does not need to obliterate the quiet. That only happens when I give those images and inner conversations my entire attention. But if I have some connection with my felt sense of presence, then the silence is not disturbed by the emergence of thoughts. Sometimes the thoughts will just quiet down and there's just silence and that's quite lovely. But I really want to see that dimensions of mind can be here even when my mind is thinking about something. And now as we feel grounded and in more contact with body and heart, we bring our attention to the center of the head. Just as we found the center of the belly for the nine and the center of the heart for the three, the center of the head we explore for the six and like the nine and the three, you might visualize it as a point of light in the center of your head, the source of guidance and knowing. And you might just feel it as an area of concentration. But it's very interesting because often here you'll feel a kind of profound openness at the same time as this sense of a certain concentration. The more I sense that concentration, the more I'm going to tend to feel my head as a spaciousness. And the more I am aware of that spaciousness, the more I feel the source in my head of these kind of emanations of light, of knowing. And again, we may or may not see anything. Some of us will, 
some of us won't. But we can still have the sensation of this openness and this concentration at the same time. And as you're feeling all of that, as you're sensing all of that, we can experience presence as readiness. The feeling of being ready for life, for the next moment, for the next breath, for love, for fear, for whatever life brings. My presence is a readiness for the adventure that lies ahead. And here I am in readiness with all of my centers available, with my mind awake to listen, And so here that readiness is very close, almost the same thing as this quality of deep listening from all the parts of me. My body's listening, my heart's listening, my head's listening, and in that listening, I'm ready for life. And however long you want to practice with this, Give yourself that grace and again, consider that as you get up from your practice consciously, some of this listening and inner readiness will go with you into the day. <laughs>